And we pray, Lord, as we come to your word, may your spirit be our teacher. May your spirit comfort us, even Lord Jesus, as you described him as another comforter. May you help us, Lord, to understand a little bit more about your involvement in our lives, in the things that we think are good and the things that we think are not so good. Lord, we've asked that you would change us as a result of hearing your word and applying it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what price would you pay to have mighty power to influence others? I remember it like it was yesterday. A number of years back, I was part of another church then, and I was sitting in my office, and in walks a couple on the knife edge of a divorce. Let's call the couple Fred and Wilma. <laughs> There's a reason. Now, a common last-ditch effort of couples right before they begin the divorce process is to try counseling, in air quotes, or scare quotes for the pastor, maybe, to see if the pastor can work wonders to save their marriage. And should it not help, one or both of the partners can say, you know, we tried that, but it didn't work, you know, so they can kind of maybe feel satisfied in their attempt to save the marriage. And without a doubt, this is where Fred was. Now, as we, as we begin to talk things through, Fred's face was as hard as a stone, like a flintstone, you might say. Nothing neither I nor Wilma could say could change him. He was dead set on walking out of what he saw was a dead marriage. Wilma was continually on the verge of weeping like she had been throughout the day before she came and they came to see me. It was a desperate situation. And I was in the middle of a sentence speaking to Fred, and then all of a sudden, Fred's face softened. It was like he changed right before my eyes. Now, I don't remember what I said, but I do remember that look. It was as though Fred awakened from a nightmare. And just like that, Fred no longer wanted a divorce. He admitted his sins, and that led Wilma to admit her sins. And to this day, my understanding is that both of them are very happily married. Amazing, isn't it? That is divine power at work. And by the power of his spirit, the Lord Jesus changed Fred and Wilma. But what an amazing thing that would be, wouldn't it? If every time we would serve a brother or sister in need, because both of them were Christians when they came in, they proclaimed that. That every time we would serve a brother or sister in need, that they would be permanently changed. Or that every time we would share the gospel, people would come to know Christ as their Savior. Oh, for the power that would rest upon us to do something like that. But as we know, that's a pipe dream. <laughs> Because no one bats a thousand in the helping elders out department, right? Not even Jesus in the days of his ministry. Though he had 12 disciples, even he lost one of them. He labeled Judas as the son of perdition. And he's the one who apostatized, fell away from Jesus. And Paul, in my opinion, the greatest Christian who ever lived, experienced many painful times. As I mentioned last week, there were at least two churches on the threshold of walking away from Jesus, committing apostasy. It was the Galatian churches, really, so there were more than one in that area, and also the Corinthians. In those churches, many were that close to walking away from the Lord. 
And we saw how much Paul personally suffered for Christ as well. But Paul's suffering was only a fulfillment of what the Lord Jesus told Ananias. Told Ananias. Not the one who the Lord struck down because he lied about his giving. Now, that's not the Ananias I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Ananias who lived in Damascus. On the day that the Lord saved Paul, who was called Saul then, Jesus appeared to Ananias and told him to go help this brand new believer. And understandably, though, Ananias was not too keen on the idea. See, he knew that Paul was on his way to arrest all the Christians in Damascus, put them in jail. The Lord Jesus told Ananias not to worry, to greet Paul and to heal him of his blindness. Blindness that Paul acquired because he saw the living Lord Jesus in all of his glory. And then the Lord told reluctant Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And with that, Ananias obeyed the Lord. The Lord used him to heal Paul to regain his sight. But how does that strike you? Part of the plan the Lord Jesus had for Paul was to show him how much he must suffer for the sake of the Lord. How does that strike you? Doesn't sound very nice, does it? Not very nice. Coming from Jesus, loving and kind, who is also the resurrected and ascended King of kings and Lord of lords. He's in charge. So today we're going to gain some fascinating insight into how Paul handled suffering, ultimately under the direction of the Lord himself. But it began with an unbelievable, heavenly, personal experience, an experience that the false teachers in Corinth could only dream about having. So how did Paul describe his suffering? He called it a thorn in the flesh. So today in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 10, so if you don't have it open yet, please get your Bibles out, paper, pixel, whichever. We're going to talk about Paul's heavenly vision and his attempted boasting about it, found in verses 1 to 6. And then verses 7 and 8, we're going to see Paul describe a satanic thorn given to him and his take on that. And then verses 9 and 10, we're going to discover how Paul's vision and his thorn interact to do a magnificent work in Paul's life. And so follow with me, as you will, in in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 to 6. I must go on boasting, Paul says. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who, 14 years ago, was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should boast, or wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me, or hears from me. Now, in these verses, we see Paul's conclusion of what we can call his boast fest. Paul continues to let the false teachers have it. These false teachers, these false brothers were trying to woo the Corinthians away from the truth of the gospel. 
And Paul was doing everything he could to put up the roadblocks to prevent the Corinthians from walking away from Christ so that they would not leave the truth and cling to a false gospel. So how does Paul describe his being snatched away to the third heaven? He's telling a story, but in such a way to make it sound like he was hearing it secondhand, as though someone were telling him their story. But it is pretty obvious that the man he knows was who? It was him. It was Paul. But why would he tell it this way, especially in such a thinly veiled manner? Well, it would seem that Paul, once again, was way outside of his comfort zone. He, could, he just couldn't bring himself to being out there for long, like the false teachers could tell stories for hours on end. You know, it just wasn't Paul for him to blow his own horn. Indeed, remember the experiences Paul listed throughout this letter. They were not good ones, humanly speaking. All the beatings, all the imprisonments, many dangers, and on it goes. They were quite pitiful when you think about it. Just read Paul's litany of all the things that happened to him. No one who wants to show himself to be great in the eyes of the world would actually boast about these things that Paul boasted about for Jesus' sake. But now, his heavenly experience, now that was something to boast about. That was something to write home about. But Paul encountered a problem with this. Did you catch it? The Lord did not allow him to give any details about this. So he couldn't write home about it, except for the fact that he had the experience. Now, we know the adage, right, of those who are in secret lines of work, if I told you I had to kill you. <laughs> well, Paul was sort of saying, if I tell you what I saw there in the third heaven, God would kill me. <laughs> so I'm not going to go there. So the only thing that Paul could do was to simply say that he had the experience, which was more than what the false teachers could boast about. Why? Because they could not get visions from the Lord. The best they could do was to get visions and revelations from their master, from Satan. But Paul telling of his experience changed things. The false teachers could no longer disrespect him because of this vision. The Corinthians had all the more reason now to stay with Paul rather than to side with the false teachers. Before Paul revealed his heavenly experience, the false teachers found it easy to write Paul off. Paul reminded them of their disdain for him in 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10. And he said, for they, as in the false teachers, say, his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. I mean, what would you look like if you were beat up and, and stoned and all that kind of stuff? Kind of weak, you think? But there was far more to Paul than meets the eye. See, just by looking at him, how could anybody tell that Paul actually went to the third heaven? There was only one way that the false teachers and the Corinthians could know that Paul went there concerning his personal experience. He revealed it to them. He could have taken that experience to the grave with him and no one would have been the wiser. But Paul chose to relay that experience to them. And choosing to reveal ourselves to others is the only way that anyone can know something about us. Isn't that right? For Paul, he revealed his experience so he could, quote, boast to the false teachers 
so that, and, and to let them know that he was in no way inferior to them, as he said in 2 Corinthians 11.5. He also let the Corinthians know that he has access not only to divine wisdom, which is something that the false teachers did not have, but even to heaven itself. And so I see here a vital principle for all of us that we can apply as brothers and sisters at Grace United. The issue is twofold, and that is trust and revelation. Trust and revelation. As we live together in love and unity, we must have these two things. See, the only way that we can get to know one another is to reveal ourselves to each other. Again, we know this to be true. Otherwise, there is no relationship. It's pretty obvious. If I'm sitting back here all the day long, and you're over here all day long, and we're not communicating, are we getting to know each other? Absolutely not. We've got to reveal ourselves to each other. But just as important is trust between us. Because if I don't trust you and you don't trust me, are we going to share anything? Absolutely not. And so here's how it works. The Lord commands us as brothers and sisters to love one another. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7, Paul tells us, love believes all things. Now, that may sound like naivety, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about basically giving one another the benefit of the doubt. Believe what we say into one another. But trust takes time to build in relationships. Rare indeed is the person who begins to share his or her heart to people they don't trust. And the more we just demonstrate love, described as trust, giving one another the benefit of the doubt, the more we're going to feel safe with one another. Follow the logic here? And the more safe we feel, the more we trust, the more trust we have with one another, the more of ourselves we will reveal to one another. I think about Donna, for example. Now, I asked Donna for permission to give this illustration here, so I'm not calling her out, you know, unawares here. When she first came to us from Ohio, we loved her, and she loved on us. And as we got to know her, and she got to know us, a great level of trust was developed in our relationship. I see Donna nodding her head, so she knows, yeah. And her trust with us was such to a degree that one day she revealed how grieved she was over the issue of abortion. And she shared her vision of what she wanted to do and light, uh, to light her candle in the face of this horrendous evil. But it took trust. It took her taking the risk because she trusts us and we trust her to share this vision with us. And even though she has no children of her own, she has a gigantic mother's heart. And how appropriate is it that we had commissioned her today to the East End Pregnancy Center? on this day, on Mother's Day, that she might engage in this good work. So back to the message. Paul had an unbelievably heavenly vision and how it profoundly altered his life. Well, how did it alter his life? Let's find out in verses 7 to 8. He says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Again, the false teachers had nothing on Paul. He had access to the very throne room of God on par with Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and their heavenly visions. And by the way, let's put ourselves in the moment with Paul 
The Lord commissioned him as an apostle. And this is all that Paul knew. How could Paul know of the influence he would have after he went to be with the Lord, all down through history? And even today, what are we doing? We are gleaning support, encouragement, and teaching and truth from Paul's writings hundreds of years, many centuries after he had gone away. He had no idea of his eventual powerful influence. But now this vision with Paul was profound. If Paul had ulterior motives, if he wanted to make a name for himself, this would have been the episode, wouldn't it? The Lord snatched Paul away to heaven, and he lived to tell about it. Think of how Paul could have exalted himself over this. He could have taken this story on the road. He could have written a book. But God has fantastic ways of using his choice servants to glorify himself, to keep the focus on God and not his servant. See, for Paul, the Lord gave him a constant reminder of his humanness so he would not exalt himself. He called it a thorn in the flesh. As one author put it, Paul's visit to heaven is accompanied by visits from hell. But what was that thorn? Short answer, anybody's guess. People are all over the map on this. I've got my ideas, and if you studied it, you've got your ideas as well. And so it's really no use speculating on exactly what that was. You know, it's kind of like a bunch of uh, self-proclaimed theologians sitting around and, and talking about passionately how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. In a very real sense, it does not matter what that thorn was. But we can say what Paul said about it. He tells us the source of the thorn. He tells us the why of the thorn, but he does not tell us the what of the thorn. So I think we ought to leave it there with that. But we are going to talk about the source. Paul states that plainly, a messenger of Satan to buffet him, to beat on him, was the source of the thorn. Whatever it was, it was painful. And I can't help but think, that from Paul's point of view, it hindered his ministry because he prayed about it. He, he sought the Lord. He begged the Lord to take it from him. His mind was never far away from this messenger of Satan. He could not merely forget about it. You know, men have a way of compartmentalizing their lives. He couldn't do this. This messenger from Satan was all over him. It definitely affected him in his ministry. It affected him again so much that he prayed about it three times. And we will see the Lord's answer to Paul's pleading for the Lord to take that away in a moment. And so, let me make a sharp point here about the source of Paul's thorn. Paul said this was a painful messenger of Satan. Though it was a messenger of Satan, ultimately it was from the Lord. Well, how do we know this? We know how Jesus describes Satan, a thief whose area of expertise is to steal and to kill and destroy. As always, the devil thinks he's getting his own way and destroying everything he gets his hands on. But let me remind us and him, in the words of Martin Luther, the devil is God's devil. And God is going to use the devil for his own purposes. Second, let's get more specific about the why of Paul's thorn. It was about that he might not sin in light of his heavenly vision. Notice how Paul understood this. He says, to keep me from becoming arrogant, conceited, 
proud. That's why the thorn was given to him. And Paul could have become conceited, couldn't he? I mean, if you had a vision like that, couldn't, wouldn't it be a temptation for you? Sure. If Paul did not have a thorn, it would have been very easy for him to consider himself just to be a cut above everybody else. After all, he was the great apostle Paul, visitor to heaven's top floor. But the thorn kept Paul on the ground. As we're going to see in a moment, not only could Paul say, thank you, Lord, for the thorn, he actually said it in so many words. Again, it was the Lord who ultimately gave to Paul this precious thorn to prevent him from sinning. How do we know it was the Lord and how, and how Satan was used by the Lord to do this? Because the last thing Satan wanted was for Paul to not be conceited, to not be proud. Truly, Satan's instrument of pain was God's purifying power. In short, Satan meant the thorn for evil. God means that very same thorn for good. And I think of us. Every one of us, as followers of Jesus, has limitations. Well, we agree with this. I think it's pretty universal. I see hands even. <laughs> Some of our limitations are painful. Like many of us here at Grace United, some of our, pain, uh, our limitations are chronic pain. Or perhaps our memory is not as sharp as we wanted to have. And all of us, even young folks, are getting older. <laughs> How many of us have thought, you know, if I only could get rid of this pain, or if I could speak a little bit better, or have a more effective recall, how much more useful could I be for the Lord? Or if I wouldn't have had all this past, or whatever the case, I could be more useful if I didn't have fill-in-the-blank. How much more kingdom work could I do if I didn't have this? On one hand, even here at Grace United, we can recount miracles in our midst. Remember the day. Praise Him. But on the other hand, devastatingly hard times, multiple surgeries that we are still recovering from. Could these be Satan's thorns? At the same time, could these very same thorns be God's purifying agents? Think about some of the great Christians in the past and in the present day. According to author Michael Reeves, he wrote the book um, Spurgeon and the Christian Life. When Spurgeon was 22 years old, some of you are a little bit older, think back when you were 22 years old. What were you doing then? Spurgeon at 22 years old, he was a pastor of a large church. He had twin babies at home to look after. He was preaching to thousands in the Surrey Gardens Music Hall one day when pranksters yelled the word fire and started a panic to exit the building, which killed seven and left 28 severely injured. Spurgeon probably would be more accurately diagnosed as PTSD because his mind never was the same again. His wife, Susanna, wrote, My beloved's anguish was so deep and violent that reason seemed to totter in her throne, and we sometimes fear that he would never preach again. This is Spurgeon. And then from the age of 33 on, physical pain became a large and constant feature of life for him. He suffered from a burning kidney inflammation called Bright's disease, as well as gout, rheumatism, and neuritis. The pain was such that it soon kept him from preaching for up to one-third of a time of the time. Added to that, overwork and stress and guilt about the stress 
Are you familiar with that? <laughs> Took its toll. And all this was in the public eye and was jumped on by many critics, making life very difficult for Spurgeon. The suffering, they argued, rather predictably, was a judgment from God. All of this happened because surely Spurgeon sinned. He did something wrong. And who doesn't know about Johnny Erickson Tata, who at 17 years old, fresh out of high school, dove into a pond, broke her neck, and was paralyzed from her shoulders down. She is still with us to this day. She's in her late 60s. She's also suffered from breast cancer, and I think she's surviving that. From Charles Spurgeon, Johnny Erickson Tata, and your life and mine, how many of us long to be released from the sting of the thorn? It seems at least at some point, Paul thought that way as well, as in how much better life would be for him, as in how much more effective he could be for the Lord if it wasn't for his thorn. He prayed three times that the Lord would remove it from him. And here's the Lord's answer and Paul's take on the matter found in verses 9 to 10. So let's go there. But he, the Lord, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content <laughs> with weaknesses, with insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Pretty straightforward answer from the all-powerful, all-knowing, kind and compassionate Lord of glory. In essence, here's what Jesus said to Paul. Paul, I'm not removing your thorn. I will continue to allow it to stay right where it is, but I will supply you with my grace to help you bear the thorn. But there's more to it than simply enduring the pain for Paul, along with some nebulous grace that is sufficient. The Lord gives his reason why he's done this, why he's left it there. He says, my reason for this is my power is made perfect in weakness. And how powerful of a statement is this? Notice what the Lord did not say. He did not say, my power is made perfect in your weakness, Paul, but perfect in weakness. It's a generalized thing. In other words, this is not merely a personal, tailor-made reason just for Paul. It is for us as well. And when we as His people suffer weakness in whatever form, the almighty power of the Lord is made perfect in these jars of clay, in these mortal bodies that are so prone to disease and pain and suffering and death, in these temporary human tents. And as we know, the Lord Jesus knew a thing or two, didn't he, about suffering and power through weakness. His hellish death proved to be the most exquisite display of divine power ever. Notice also in verse 9 at the word said, this is what is known as a perfect tense verb. A little Greek lesson here. And I find this significant. And what this basically means is this, that the Lord with finality told Paul, I gave you my answer. My grace is sufficient for you. I'm not changing my mind on this. That's what that word in the perfect tense said means. And well, after the Lord told Paul in so many words, my answer to you is final. What did Paul do about it? How did he respond 
to the Lord's answer? Did he become despondent? Did he mope around? Did he walk away from the Lord because the Lord said no to his request to have the painful satanic messenger removed when the Lord Jesus could have easily done it? Seemingly, he pivoted, didn't he? He eagerly accepted the Lord's answer with this because the Lord told Paul no. What did Paul do? He made some attitude adjustments, didn't he? Instead of bemoaning his thorn, he boasted of his weaknesses. Instead of gritting his teeth and bearing the painful thorn, he gladly rejoiced. And this is huge, isn't it? What would you do? Paul's glad boasting of his weakness has its reward. The power of Christ resting on him. But what does this imply? To the degree Paul sulks and is depressed about his thorn is the degree that the power of Christ upon him is diminished. And the mighty apostle Paul then becomes more like Eeyore than like Christ. You know, we all remember Eeyore, don't we? You know, if the glass is nine-tenths full, Eeyore's focus will be on the one-tenth that's empty. And how easy is it for all of us even those who know Christ as their Lord and Savior and want to follow Him wholeheartedly, how easy is it to develop a complaining spirit when we fail to see the sufficiency of the Lord's grace and the power of Christ being made perfect in our weakness? Paul's boast was not in his awesome experiences of heaven. It was not in his mighty spiritual exploits, but it was in his weakness. And here's what boasting for Paul looks like in his life. He says, for the sake of Jesus, not for his own sake, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. When Paul knows that his circumstances are going south due to the fact that he's a Christian, or when what is happening to Paul is exactly opposite of what he expects things to be, Paul gets excited. He gets excited. He puts a smile on his face with this. The ESV has it, content. Other versions render it as him actually taking pleasure in these difficulties. This is Paul's testimony. It's as though Paul is filled with anticipation as to how the Lord is now going to use even this new painful difficulty in his life to accomplish God's purposes. For when Paul is weak, then, and should we say only then, he is strong. See, our strength, your strength, my strength, only carries us a little ways, doesn't it? But when our strength fails is where the Lord's strength begins. And so it is with us. When we recognize how weak we are, how limiting our limitations make us, we are now in the perfect place to discover that the grace of Christ is sufficient for us. And we can say then about our struggles for the sake of Christ that when we are weak, we are strong, strong in the strength that He supplies. And you know, Charles Spurgeon and Johnny Erickson Tata discovered what Paul discovered, that when they were weak, they were strong in the strength of Christ. Let me give you more of Spurgeon's insights according to Michael Reeves. Spurgeon saw that our Heavenly Father ordains suffering for believers. Catch that. Ordains suffering for believers. 
Though our trials may come from the world and the flesh and the devil, they are overruled and ordained by God, who treats them as an important part, important parts of our new life in Christ. For a start, we simply cannot be like Christ if we are not treated like him, if we have a life of ease when he has so much pain. Spurgeon said, do you expect to be crowned with gold where he was crowned with thorns? Shall lilies grow for you and briars for him? Johnny Erickson Tata also experienced profound insight, not in spite of, but because of the accident. Here's what she said many years after she had her accident. She said these words, God loved me enough to put me in this wheelchair. As many of us know, it's exactly because of what Johnny went through, not in spite of it, not that she simply made the best of a bad situation, that an international ministry called Johnny and Friends was born. On her website, johnnyandfriends.org, one of her entries simply says this, Johnny celebrates 50 years of God's faithfulness to her in the wheelchair. And multiplied millions have been impacted, all because, in her words, God loved me enough to put me there. In John 9, we read about the man who was born blind. The disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, he should be born blind? You know the story, don't you? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents had sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man, born blind, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Let me give us one more thought before we finish the message. And the watchword is humility. Humility. Paul was given a thorn in his flesh to keep him from getting conceited. The Lord answered Paul's prayer that he might get rid of the thorn with a no because of his grace. It was sufficient for Paul. Paul knew what the Lord was doing. Why? Because the Lord told him what he was doing. But I have a question for all of us. When was the last time the Lord Jesus actually appeared to you and told you what he was doing in your life? Was that last week? Maybe earlier today? How about never, <laughs> right? How often do we think that when we go through hard times or even things that we consider to be profound times of blessing, we conclude, I know why God did this in my life. Let me be blunt. No, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. The best we can say is, I think I understand something of what the Lord is doing here. The reality is, unless the Lord Jesus has actually told us why, we simply don't have a complete answer as to what he's doing. We tend to sell him short. See, let's not forget that we are dealing with the only, all-powerful, all-knowing, thoroughly good creator of the universe. <laughs> try playing chess with him. Plain and simple, let's not try to conclude that we really understand why a good or a bad situation comes into our lives or into somebody else's life. For without a doubt, what is going on in our lives is far more grand, 
far more glorious than we could ever imagine. Think the crucifixion of Jesus. What appeared to be absolute devastation has resulted in the salvation of multiplied billions of people forever. Truly what God does is far more, far more than meets the eye. Now it's our turn. What are the limitations in your life? What are the thorn or thorns that the Lord has given you? You may feel like you've got a lot of thorns. Could it be that the limitations, which we think are great hindrances, are really the agents which purify us and serve to make us even more useful, more powerful for His purposes than we could ever be without them? Let me finish out this message with a song, lyrics. Bet you didn't see that coming. A guy by the name of Steve Green, no relation to Keith Green, sang the song called Refiner's Fire. Let these words be our prayer of commitment as we reflect on the limitations of our lives and of his power that he perfects in our weakness. There burns a fire with sacred heat, white hot with holy flame. And all who dare pass through its blaze will not emerge the same. Some as bronze, some as silver, some as gold, and then with great skill, all are hammered by their sufferings on the anvil of his will. The refiner's fire has now become my soul's desire. Is that the way you feel about it? Purged and cleansed and purified, that the Lord be glorified. He's consuming my soul, refining me, making me whole. No matter what I may lose, I choose, do you? I choose the refiner's fire. I'm learning now to trust his touch, to crave the fire's embrace. For though my past with sin was etched, his mercies did erase. Each time his purging cleanses deeper, I'm not sure that I'll survive. Yet the strength in growing weaker keeps my hungry soul alive. The refiner's fire has now become my soul's desire, purged and cleansed and purified, that the Lord be glorified. He is consuming my soul, refining me, making me whole. No matter what I may lose, I choose the refiner's fire. Let's pray together. Lord, these were tough things. Your word, through Paul's testimony, brought us up close and personal with our own limitations. In a world that tells us, a culture that, that, that seeps us in, we can do whatever we want to do. We can be whoever we want to be. Lord, we long for those heavenly experiences. And oftentimes, so we can exalt ourselves. But Lord, your way is not that way. You have fantastic ways of, of keeping the focus on you and your servants, not upon us. 
And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us to embrace the refiner's fire, to embrace the fuller's soap, that you would cleanse us thoroughly, wash us thoroughly, purge us in deeper and deeper levels. Lord, I pray that you would consume all the dross in our souls to make us more useful for you. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords, and you want your servants to be clean. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that your grace has staying power. You do not leave us when the going gets tough. In fact, Lord, you drive us further into the cleansing. Lord, I pray that as we go through these things, these hard times, that you'll help us understand maybe just a little bit more about what it means to be purified in your eyes. Lord, thank you for salvation in Christ. Thank you that the day that we trusted you, all of us in this room and all of us who are under the sound of my voice, the day we trusted you as our Lord and Savior, you began that process of purifying us, training us for righteousness so that we may be fit for heaven. Help us, Lord Jesus, to follow you, follow you hard now more than ever before. Lord, this world is not a friend to you, but we know, Lord, day, Lord one day you're going to come back and you're going to set all things right. Until that day, Lord, may we be found faithful. And we thank you, Lord, for what you are doing and what you will do in our lives. And now we ask, Lord, as we turn our attention to the giving, we thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege of doing so. Lord, this is an act of worship. Help us to give because you've given us the power to get wealth. That's what your word tells us. I thank you also, Lord, for our time that we can sing. Help us, Lord, to be able to sing with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to you. And we'll give you thanks and praise as we leave this place to minister in a world that so desperately needs you. In Jesus' name.